few years ago I was chatting to a friend about God and my friend uh, wasn't a Christian, he was an atheist uh, and he said something really interesting. He said, if God was real, God would show himself. Now I was an ultra young, uh, enthusiast, uh, a young ultra enthusiastic Christian and I wanted to tell him everything. Uh, I tried to convince my friend that God had shown himself in creation, in the Bible and most profoundly Uh, in his son, Jesus Christ. But my friend wasn't convinced. And I've thought about what my friend has said a fair bit since then. Uh, And it's occurred to me um, that my friend is actually like most Australians today. Um, Take a trip down to the Body, Mind and Soul, or Spirit rather, festival, uh, and you'll see that what people uh, these days count as real and authentic are the things that you can see and touch and experience. And that's what my mate wanted. He wanted to personally experience God's presence, as it were. Well, at the time, I actually thought what my friend wanted was ridiculous. Uh, I thought uh, that you could only know God that intimately uh, when you got to heaven. Well, I want to say now that I think I was wrong, and this passage shows us why. This passage is about God's presence in your life, Um, more than just God's everywhere presence, his omnipresence, if you like, uh, his intimate relationship presence, what we're going to be calling his glory presence. Uh, now, I want to say up front that this is an incredibly rich passage, so I'm not going to be able to touch on every little nuance of the passage, so please do come up and ask me questions that you might have at the end, if you do. Uh, so we're going to look at our passage under three headings. Uh, number one, needing God's presence. Number two, experiencing God's presence. Number three, finding God's presence. They're all kind of roughly the same, so if you're taking notes, um, you could probably space them out roughly evenly. Number one, needing God's presence. Number two, experiencing God's presence. Number three, finding God's presence. Number one, needing. If you um, were able to go up to all those people walking across the bridge uh, this afternoon and you were able to survey a number of them to ask them what do they think the point of Christianity is, uh, you might get something along the lines of this, from a few people at least. It's to be a good person. If you're good, God will reward you. And if you're really good, uh, God will let you into heaven. You might have heard that before. But that's not exactly what the Bible says, is it? Uh, In the Bible, God's big purpose is not so much to get people who'll obey, but rather people who'll belong. In other words, God's plans throughout history uh, have mainly been about bringing people to himself. And that's exactly what we've been seeing uh, as we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of Exodus over the last few weeks. We've seen God rescue a people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. Uh, And then we've seen in Exodus 19, uh, God says to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, why? He told them why he rescued them. He said, "Um, I carried you on eagles' wings uh, to bring you to myself. God brought them out of Egypt to bring them into his presence, is what he's saying. Um, to his presence, not just to obey him. You might remember that the law came after God had rescued them. Um, God brought them out to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, a people who would have special access to God, to his presence. Um, And then a bit later, um, we haven't quite gone into this during our sermon series, but Exodus chapters 25 to 31, uh, God shared with Moses the pinnacle uh, of his plans for the Israelites. It was this. The tabernacle. The tabernacle, you say? The tabernacle is the place where God's glory presence would literally dwell right in the middle of the Israelite camp. 
They would travel together to the promised land, God and his people. God would be their God and they would be his people. But uh, what happens? Some of you might remember Exodus 32. The reading just before, uh, the passage just before our reading, um, the whole plan falls apart. The Israelites betray God. They made an idol for themselves in the form of a golden calf. You might be well familiar with that story. Uh, And the Israelites worshipped it. They did the very thing God told them not to do. And so you might remember God's anger burns. Moses, thankfully, intercedes. God remarkably relents. Now in chapter 3, God does something even more remarkable. So if uh, you've got your Bibles there, open them up to um, chapter 33, uh, page 64, from verse 1. God says to the Israelites, this intimate relationship I have planned, it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. You're too stiff-necked. You're too unfaithful for my presence to dwell with you. So God says, here's what I'm going to do. Leave this place, verse 1, leave Mount Sinai and go to the promised land. I'm giving it to you. It's yours, says God. Verse 2, and I will send an angel to drive out the inhabitants there. Verse 3, it's a prosperous land. It's flowing with milk and honey. But, see there at the end of verse 3, I will not go with you because... You are a stiff-necked people. My presence will not go with you. Now, um, just scroll down with me to um, verse 14. It's on the top of page 65. Uh, God says to Moses, My presence will go with you. And I said, thinking, what's going on? Is he God not going to go with him or is God going to go with him? Now, verse 14 only makes sense when you realise that the you there is singular. So God is saying uh, to Moses, Moses, I'll go with you, but not with the people. So let's put all this together. What's God offering the Israelites? Well, he's offering them economic prosperity, a land flowing with milk and honey. He's offering them the fulfilment of all their deepest desires and dreams. Um, They've been dreaming about this land for hundreds and hundreds of years. And and what's interesting, he's offering them a religious professional. He's giving them Moses. They won't have the tabernacle inside the camp but they'll have Moses and Moses can go outside to meet with God and come back inside and tell them how they are to live. We get that from the idea of the ten of meeting, verses 7 to 11. That's what's going on there. Now, um, I'm going to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek when I say this, but just, just a little bit. God is offering here to the Israelites the kind of religion that most Australians really would like. Think about it. Economic prosperity, fulfilment of your deepest desires and dreams and a religious professional who meets with God so that you don't have to. In other words, all of God's blessings but none of the maintenance costs of meeting with God. Sounds pretty good? Well, do the Israelites accept the offer? Look at verse 4. No, they don't. They say these words are distressing to us. They mourn and they cast off their ornaments. And it's not just them. Moses is the same. Uh, Look up with me to verse 15. Just after God has said, I will go with you but not with the people. Moses says, if your presence doesn't go with us, if your presence just goes with me and not with the people, don't send us up from here. Now, do you know how outrageous this is? God is offering them something along the lines of the whole Sydney Basin area from the coast to the Blue Mountains, perhaps even more than that. Think of the property value if you're in real estate. Um, And... um, If they don't take it, they're just going to stay at Mount Sinai and they're going to dwindle there. They're going to die there. But in verse 15, Moses says, if all you're offering, if all you're offering God, 
to us are your blessings, but not your presence. We don't want it. We need more than your blessings. We need you. In other words, all of life's blessings are not worth having. Indeed, we could go so far as to say life itself is not worth living unless you have God's intimate presence in your life. Now, just to clarify, we're talking about something more than God's everywhere presence, his omnipresence. Uh, We're talking about something more than what some people might call touching the divine. Um, You know, when you go out onto a lake or you walk through a crisp rainforest or you climb that mountain and you see this beautiful sunset or you look up at the stars and you just think, wow, I sense God is in this somehow. We're talking about more than that. Moses and the Israelites need more than his everywhere presence. They need his intimate relationship presence. They need his glory presence. And here's the point. So do we. The Bible says that intimate relationship with God is what human life was made for. It's what Adam and Eve lost when they sinned in the garden. It's what all of the law and all of the prophets pointed to and it's the great ultimate joy and blessing that uh, we look forward to uh, in heaven, Revelation 21, where God will say from the throne, now the dwelling, literally now the tabernacle of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people. God will dwell with them and be their God. Now experiencing God's presence is something more than just the pie in the sky when you die. It's not, I guess, less than that. Um, you will experience God's presence, um, but it's more than that. That's the point I'm trying to say. It's, it's, if you like, the steak on the plate while you wait. In Psalm 16, King, King David says to God, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What this means is that all joys and all pleasures in life come from God. They're actually, indeed, spotlights pointing back to the source of those pleasures and joy. Let me put it this way, if you like. The love that you experience in outstretched arms, the beauty you experience in a beautiful landscape, the satisfaction you find in achieving your goals, all of these are just signposts to the ultimate love, the ultimate beauty, the ultimate satisfaction that is found in an intimate relationship with God himself. So before we move on, let me ask you quickly, have you become merely satisfied with God's blessings? Have you become satisfied merely with coming to church and hearing the paid professional each week who tells you how to live and following the rules but you yourself don't want and don't have an intimate relationship with the living God? Now don't mishear me. These are all good things, God's blessings, listening to the minister each week. He'll help you know God better, obeying God's rules. They're all good things but they're not, here's the point, they're not the ultimate thing. Experiencing God's glory presence is the pinnacle of human existence. It's the reason why we were made, in fact, And so we need it. That's point number one, needing God's presence. Point number two, experiencing God's presence. Well, if we need it, what is it? I suppose you're asking. Uh, This passage gives us two key words uh, which help us understand what it is to experience God's glory presence. And they're the word glory and the word face. And what's interesting about the word face is that in the Hebrew, it's exactly the same word uh, that's translated as the word presence. So when God says, if you want to look at verse 14, my presence will go with you, he's literally saying my face will go with you. Uh, There's another interesting thing about the word glory and the word face. Um, It's that they're used interchangeably. Uh, Moses says in verse 18, now show me your glory. God says, verse 20, you cannot see my face. And so uh, put it all together, God's face is God's presence. God's glory is God's face, if you're still following. 
and therefore God's glory is God's presence. So that's why we've gone with God's glory presence. So what is it? First, let's look at the word glory. Now, in the Bible, glory actually means weight. It means heaviness. Let me illustrate how the word might be used. If you dropped a cork into a bucket full of water, the cork makes no impact. Why? Well, it's because the cork is lighter than the water. You might say it has no glory. On the other hand, if you dropped a rock into the same bucket, what happens? The rock is weightier. You might say it has more glory. And so it makes an impact. The water gives way. And you begin to experience God's glory presence in your life when you realise that God is weightier than you are. It's when you give way to God. uh, By way of contrast, you might know someone who'll say to you, I'd like to think of God as pure love. I don't know if you've ever heard someone say that. Um, Or you might have heard someone say, I've always thought of God as a spiritual force that surrounds us and binds us and makes us grow. That was actually Yoda from Star Wars. (laughs) thought Gus would get that one. Uh, Now, you experience God's glory presence when you realise that you don't construct God as those people uh, in the the example I just gave did. Your ideas about justice and forgiveness or whatever don't shape who God is. He shapes you. He's weightier than you. You give way to him. Uh, Now, glory doesn't just mean weight. It also means significance or matter. You experience God's glory presence in your life when he matters more to you, in fact, than you do and everything else. Uh, For example, you might find that all of a sudden your priorities start changing. I don't know if that's happened. Uh, You become interested in praying and reading, really interested, and meeting with other people who feel the same way. You start doing weird things like reading the Bible on public transport. Um, You you find that you can't help sharing the good news about Jesus with your friends and work colleagues, Um, something you'd never dream about doing in the past. Your priorities start changing. Well, if that's happening, then that's the glory of God at work in your life. Uh, Second, let's look at the word face or presence. Uh, Now, face implies intimate relationship. What do I mean? Well, you go have a cup of coffee with someone and what do you do? You don't spend the whole time looking at their elbow or their knee or something like that. You look at their face. You engage with their face. You see emails, letters, SMS, even the video phones, they're never going to be an adequate replacement uh, for face-to-face contact. Why? Well, the face is the relational window. It fills your senses, as it were. It tells us what's going on down below. It's the most intimate point of relational contact. And so when God says, I have a face, I have a face, he's saying that there's an intimate relationship with me that you can know and experience. Now, what exactly does that look like? Let me give you one perspective. Uh, Verse 11 is a a nice, helpful one. Um, It's meeting with God face to face uh, as a man speaks with his friend, as Moses and God do. Well, uh, there's a bit of an analogy here, but with real friendship, like real friendship, you speak to God when you experience uh, God's face or God's presence. You tell him how awesome he is. Um, You share with him what's going on and you might ask him for things. You speak with God. Uh, But at the same time, he speaks with you like a friend. You might say he speaks to you, like what kind of you hear things. Well, not exactly. That's not exactly what I mean. Um, It's it's when God, when what you know about God from the Bible becomes real, uh, becomes alive uh, in your heart. It's when the Holy Spirit teaches you things. So you might read, for example, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your, your, all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And you think to yourself, wow, if he's like that, why was I ever anxious? You might read things like Romans 8, 28, for we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And you think, 
wow, if God's like that, why, why did I doubt? Why am I scared? Why was I scared? Why was I angry? Why couldn't I forgive? Here's another perspective. Experiencing God's face is when God fills up your senses. For example, it's one thing to be told that honey is sweet. It's a completely different thing to have it literally fill up your mouth, to taste the sweetness of honey. Likewise, it's one thing to read about and discuss the grace and love of God. It's a completely different thing uh, to be so utterly awed by his grace and love that God literally fills up your senses. Now, what on earth am I talking about? Let me give you an example. Um, it's the best one I could find. Um, it's from one of the, um, one of the, it's the, from the journal of one of the 18th century Puritans. Um, There's a guy called Jonathan Edwards, a major intellectual, but he knew God intimately. He wrote that one day he rode out into the woods and he found a nice quiet spot to pray and meditate, to you know, speak and to listen, as we were saying. Um, then suddenly he said he had a view of the glory of the Son of God. It wasn't a vision. Let me just make that clear. He said this, This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. It swallowed up all thought and conception, which continued about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. Friends, that's what it is to have all your senses filled up with the presence, with the face, as it were, of God. Let me sum up. Experiencing God's glory presence means giving way to God letting him shape your whole understanding and not the other way around as we tend to do as modern people. It means treating him as the one who matters most in your life. It means reorienting your life around his priorities, not your own. It means having your senses filled up with his reality. It's when what you know about God becomes alive by the Holy Spirit in your heart. Now, just a quick word of clarification. I'm not saying that um, this is something that you either don't experience or you do experience. Um, like in human experience, in human relationships, your relationship with God grows and sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Um, and I want to say you probably won't experience uh, the consistency, maybe even not the degree of the experience that Jonathan Edwards um, had that I just read out to you. Uh, for that consist- consistency and for even a greater degree, uh, we need to wait for heaven. Uh, but the point is God invites us to seek his glory presence now. That's the point I'm trying to make. That's point number two, experiencing God's presence. Point number three, finding God's presence. If we need God's presence and we can experience God's presence in the here and now, how do you find it? Well, the passage does mention many different things, um, but um, why don't we just focus on the main one? And that is this, reflect on the gospel. You will experience God's glory presence more and more in your life the more you reflect on the glory of the gospel. Uh, And I want to say Exodus 33 and 34 give us, in a sense, the essence of the gospel. Uh, Now remember the Israelites' problem. They need God's glory presence but they can't have it because God is too holy and they're too unfaithful. But then in verse 17, God finally agrees to go with all the people. In other words, God agrees to forgive the Israelites. Now, of course, this is the very thing Moses had been asking God for, but Moses knows how undeserving his people are of God's forgiveness. Uh, So he says, um, verse 18, Now show me your glory. He's asking, Now God, show me why you, a holy God, can forgive a wicked people like this. 
God gives part of the answer. Part of the answer in verse 19, he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. But that's just part of the answer. Um, God then says, um, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. In God's mind, God's goodness is his glory. His goodness is, uh, his glory rather, is his goodness. And then in verse, uh, chapter 33, verse 6, if you want to come with me there. 34, verse 6. God comes down and proclaims his name. That's his goodness. 34 verse 6. Then the Lord uh, came down, as I just said, uh, verse 6, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. So uh, 34, 6 and 7 here are the essence of God's goodness. He says, I'm completely compassionate and merciful. I'm completely forgiving and yet, at exactly the same time, I'm completely holy and just. I never let the guilty go unpunished. And that's the essence of his glory. He's completely merciful and he's completely just. Now, did you notice there's a tension? Uh, if God is completely merciful, what does that mean? Uh, it means he has to let the guilty go unpunished. And that means he can't be completely just, can he? He just can't be. On the other hand, if God is completely just, that means he has to punish all the guilty. And so that means he can't be completely merciful. But God says he's both completely merciful and completely just. And so to see they're right in the middle of God's, uh, the essence of God's glory, the essence of his goodness, the essence of the gospel, there's this tension. Do you see that? So how's the tension resolved? It's simple. It's profound. In one word, it's Jesus. John chapter 1 tells us when God that God became flesh and made his dwelling, his tabernacle among us and we beheld his glory. Where? Where do we see God's glory most powerfully displayed, ultimately displayed? It's in Jesus on the cross. In Jesus who before time began experienced incomparable intimacy of relationship with God, pouring out love for one another, father to the son, son to the father, And yet on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cosmically cosmically ignored on the cross. And we have to ask ourselves, why? On the cross, God became the guilty so that God could forgive the guilty. On the cross, Jesus got the punishment we deserved so that we could get the intimate relationship with God that he deserved. That's how God can be both completely merciful and completely just at exactly the same time. And friends, that's the essence of God's glory. That's the expression of God's goodness. That's the magnificence of the gospel. And you'll only find God's glory presence when you see the glory of the gospel, when it becomes real and true and abundantly awesome in your heart. In the words of 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, verse 6, You'll find God's glory presence when God causes to shine in your heart the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
And as you reflect on the magnificence of the gospel, uh, you'll find that more and more God will shape your understanding of the world and not the other way around. He will matter most in your life. The Bible will come alive to you. It will fill your senses and you will see his beauty and want him simply for who he is, not just for his blessings. Moses saw the back. In Jesus, we see the front. In Jesus, we see God's face. All the joys and blessings you've ever wanted in life, here's the pinnacle of them all. Come and find it in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your great plan for us from the beginning of time was to have a deep and intimate relationship with you through Jesus. Please open the eyes of our hearts to see your glory in the gospel of Christ and his death for us on the cross. Father, we ask that we might see your glory, not just for our own sakes, but for the sake of our church, for the sake of our community, and ultimately all for the sake of your glory.